Flying Coach, welcome back. A little bit of a hiatus, Pete, but uh, we're, we're back after a few weeks. Uh, good to see you. Yeah, well, it's good to be back. We got the uh, July 4th in the middle of all this, and so we're, we're back at it. And we're kind of ready to close it out, and, and it's uh, it's been really an extraordinary uh, opportunity for myself personally to, to work with you, Steve. On this has been such a blast, and, and uh, really grateful for the opportunity that, that you know we were given to, to do the work we want to do here. Yeah, I agree. This this is um, this has been so much fun, and uh, it's been fantastic working with you. This will be our last one. Um, you know, I, we wanted to take a few minutes here before we. Uh, have our guest, uh, Senator Cory Booker on, who uh, is just brilliant and uh, such an amazing guest. But uh, just wanted to take a couple of minutes to um, talk a little bit about the sports world, what's going on today, where the NFL is, where the NBA is, and then uh, share a little bit about, uh, you know, these these last few months and why we've done this podcast and where we're heading. And, uh, and we'll roll right in with, uh, with Corey. Pete, you want to Kind of share where you guys are, the Seahawks, the NFL. What's uh, what's the schedule now going into training camp? Normally, you'd be going into camp what end of July, right? Under yeah, it's coming up. Yeah, we're still on schedule with at this time. It has not been committed to by the league and the players. Uh, uh, association yet, but the 21st is when the young guys can show up, and the 28th, the veterans uh, will be uh, ready to go to camp. Uh, that's kind of been been orchestrated by the CBA all along. But there's still agreements that need to be settled, and so we're unsettled at this time. We don't know um, exactly. They they've been talking almost on a daily basis to try to come to agreements on all the different issues, and uh, we're still waiting for confirmation. Um, but in that, you know, I'm hoping that if we, uh, whatever time it takes to do this right, is important. We're, there's so much at stake here, and, and of course, we everybody wants a football season. I can't even imagine anything but that happening in timely fashion here, but whatever it takes, you know, to get there properly so that we can take care of everyone like we need to. Um, and there's, there's, it's not just, there's no one single group. It's players, it's their families, it's the coaches, it's their families, it's our support group, their families, our fans, everyone that we're, that is connected here. We want to take every step to do this properly and thoughtfully. And, and, uh, so that once we get back, we can stay back and, and, and really put something together. So, uh, there's still a lot of unanswered questions still. And uh, as, the 21st is the date that the, that the rookies could officially be with us. They'll come in a couple of days before that to, to test their way into through the quarantine of it. And, and then the veteran players would come in on the 28th would be the first day that they would have their physicals and our first meetings. We're going to be virtual. We're going to be, uh, uh, you know, we're going to do all kinds of things differently than we've done them in the past. But yet we have prepared for that, you know, with, with all of the virtual work we've done in this offseason. So uh, the work we'll do will basically be on the field. Walkthroughs and, and practice will be out on the field and out of the building for uh, other than the absolute minimum uh that we you know we can put them through so there's a lot of considerations and you know as we're watching here you know watching basketball and, and baseball they're, they're getting started it's taking them a while to get started we need the information that they can bring to us so that we can make good choices and all uh and we're starting to gain, gain some stuff so maybe you can help us with what's going on with basketball yeah yeah so you know 22 teams have gathered in in orlando um the bubble they're calling it and uh you know, I, I really have a lot of respect for the the, the players and coaches and all the uh, referees and uh, media members. Uh, you know, people are are making big sacrifices, um, going away from their families. You know, the two teams that end up assuming this thing uh, works out and goes the full distance, two teams that go to the finals will end up being in the bubble for three months, uh, which is just crazy. Um, but this is the world we're living in these days. Everybody's trying to adapt and, and figure out their situation. 
Um, we are, the Warriors are one of eight teams that because of our record that, um, you know, has, was not invited to Orlando. And so right now we have, uh, our young players coming in, working out individually, uh, one player, one coach, um, at our facility in San Francisco, uh, no team activities are allowed, um, at this point. And then the one thing that's kind of interesting that I that I want to ask you about too with the NFL is you know what makes this a little tricky for the NBA. Every state, every city's got a different set of uh, regulations, uh, health and safety uh, protocols. So what? How does that manifest itself in the NFL? Like what? What if the state of Washington has a completely de- different set of rules in the state of Florida, and Washington says no, you guys got to shut down. Florida says, no, you guys are good. How does the NFL handle that if once camp starts? Now, I don't know exactly how the, the particulars have come about and if it's settled yet, but I do know that there's been work done from the NFL with the governors of the states to to find some uh, an agreement on clearance to allow us to go back to the buildings and the facilities. That I think that leads us into the the next step, which which is having camps, and then and then what happens at the stadiums. That could be very different, differing from one state to the next. Uh, where maybe there be some states will allow fans to to come in on a limited basis, and other states that don't. Um, I don't think all of that. Well, I've not seen where that's all set at this point. Um, so that's still in in negotiations i would imagine there are some states already that are, that have i know there's three or four of them that have not cleared the way and so um but i know the league's all over it and they'll, they'll figure that out i can't imagine that they won't come to some kind of agreement but it could easily happen circumstances within a particular state could shift it just as we've watched there's so many states in different status uh, status right now um that could restrict the, the action I mean, there's there's a lot of unknowns and there's a lot of questions yeah. to be to be answered yet. And, and that's some of the big ones that that that's still a ways off. I think we're really going to let's try to get us to camp right now. And those those will be answered later on. But I think, you know, there's a consideration that the states want to make. They want it to happen just like we all do. We all want to see football. We all want kids to go back to school. We sure. all want work to be redone. Well, that that's that's the baseline. Everybody gets that. That's that should not govern what we do. We should what should govern what we do is doing the right thing to keep our people safe and 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 to make progress. And, and keep people from passing, you know, and, and all that. So we got to do whatever we can to do that. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And we're we're uh, we're waiting to hear whether there's going to be a. Well, we, I call it the JV bubble, you know, <laughs> for the eight teams that uh, that didn't didn't make the Orlando bubble. There may be a second bubble in Chicago. The league has talked about it for sometime in September, where mm-hmm. the other eight teams uh, would gather and and uh, be able to practice. Because the the one thing that all of the uh, coaches of, of and general managers of the eight teams that aren't in Orlando, the one thing that's a consensus is it's not good to go nine straight months without playing any basketball, you know, between yeah. March of last season and then the beginning of next season in December. So we're trying to to figure it out too. But uh, like you said, everything's sort of day, day to day. And uh, yeah, I guess we'll learn from baseball opening days in uh, about two weeks, I think. Um so we'll see how Major League Baseball does. I've been watching some Premier League. I'm a Liverpool fan. I, <laughs> so I wake up and watch uh, Premier League. They're pumping uh, fan noise uh, into the stadiums. And it's actually been pretty entertaining. So the golf has been um, it's working. been good. I don't think you're missing much with without fans in golf, personally. Right. But uh, you know, it's, uh, it's good to at least, as a sports fan, to start uh, getting to – 
to watch some stuff on TV yeah. again. We've been so privileged to have so much around us, you know, for entertainment and all. And if in the events that we don't get as much, we're just going to have to suck it up. You know what I mean? We're just yeah. going to have to get through it because this is not going to last forever, but it, it is going to be temporary and it doesn't seem like it now, but we'll be back to things as normal eventually. But in the meantime, everybody's adapting and everybody has to kind of just tough it out and, and grit it out and, and, and suck it up. And, and uh, if that's what we have to do, we'll do the same. And, you know, if if there is nine months to go or a whole year goes without us playing our sports, well, it's, it's pretty relative. Everybody's going to be kind of at the same stages. I've always go back to that and it helps me rationalize that we'll make it, you know, and we'll we'll get back in order and, and all of that. So let's wish us all the best. Let's, let's stay healthy and stay safe as we're doing this. That's that's what's most important right now. Yeah, no doubt. And and wear a mask no matter where you yeah, are. Do no all of the, yeah, do all of, follow the science, do all the right things. Exactly. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, when we started this uh, back in, I guess, um, April, early April was our first podcast. You know, the, the main thing we wanted to do was raise some money for COVID relief. Um, so we, we put this podcast together and Spotify made uh, $100,000 do donations to the uh, Seahawks Foundation and the Warriors Foundation. We, we were also trying to think maybe we could keep some people entertained a little bit, you know, talk about our sports, give people a little different perspective on, uh, on you know, coaching and coaching from two different sports and getting different perspectives on things. And, uh, and then it, it, it really, uh, we started having guests and <laughs> we had some fantastic yeah, we uh, did. guests. Brene Brown was, was, was great. You guys uh, have worked together for Last couple of years, I think, right? Yes, yeah. Helping us be courageous and, and be vulnerable and, and all yeah. that she was teaching. She coached us up. She was great. And and uh, we had a couple of baseball uh, guests. Uh, Dave Roberts, Scott Boris came on. Uh, Bill Murray just volunteered to come on and, and entertain us, which was great. Yeah, she just did. completely changed it up with some humor. And Michael Lewis, um, the author, um, we want to thank him as well. We want to thank all of our guests. They were they blew us away. Um, yeah, really amazing. Amazing and, awareness. Uh, yeah, it was it was beautiful. It's always so wonderful to to hear smart people and and their their perspective. And you know, everybody's sort of sitting in a different seat and observing. And and it's so fun to to get everybody's views. But you know, really, everything changed uh, a couple months ago uh, with the murder of George Floyd and the, the social justice movement that began. And it really uh, shifted the entire uh, focus of this podcast. And the last few weeks have been really um, emotional and uh, fascinating and illuminating. Um, I thought the, the you know, pa Greg Popovich was Pop incredible. Yeah, that was a great one. And Doc Rivers, you know, talking about growing up as the son of a policeman in a Chicago suburb yeah, was, I'll never forget um, his stories and just his perspective. Amazing. Yeah. That's, we've been so fortunate. I mean, everybody's, everybody has been a highlight. You know, I go all the way back to Dave when, when we had baseball, basketball, and football on here. That was a thrill for me, you know, that we're representing all the major leagues. I thought that yeah. was really something, but pop really was there right at the, at the, it, as the event took place and it gave us a chance for three white guys coaches to help people talk about white issues black issues and make sense and learn and go back and history issues and so much stuff we've been we've been fortunate to, to touch on it's been a great a great thrill uh, doc rivers was really another highlight because doc was so clear about his upbringing and and what it was like to grow up as a young black man 
with a father that was in law enforcement and what it was like to be from that perspective and and, and uh, how to deal with, with law enforcement as soon as they walked across the, uh, the threshold of their little community where they lived, you know, and all things changed. And, oh, man, it was so much real, uh, so much truth. And I hope people – I hope people were – opened up to some of what we need to learn about what's going on in the cultures around us. And so yeah. that we can be more uh, caring and loving and, and, and fight for the, the right things, you know, for all of all, for all people, you know, you know, after doc, after doc shared that story talking about, um, you know, his father saying, look, you're, you're okay right here. Yeah, I think Maywood was Maywood, the town yeah. that he grew up in. He said, you're okay right here. But as soon as you leave Maywood, you know, you got to be really careful because, the policemen outside of Maywood are not going to know who you are and you better, you better be on your best behavior. You better, you know, you better not screw up. You could be in real trouble. After that podcast, a, a good family friend of ours um, texted me and said, I grew up in the next town over from Maywood. And mm. my family said, whatever you do, don't go into Maywood. So, Think about the irony yeah, yeah. of, you know, this is a white person, a white family saying, you know, don't go into Maywood. It's dangerous there. Doc Rivers' father, the policeman saying, you know, if you leave Maywood, that's where the danger begins. And this whole culture of fear that we all experience at some level. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that was, gosh, 40 years ago we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's a commonplace illustration of of, of white reference and uh, growing up, and black reference and growing up, and at, at absolutely opposite of, of each other. And, and yeah, so, yeah. And, you know, in our lives, so many of our years in our lives, we were aware of things, but yet we didn't talk about them. We didn't know how to express our feelings, or we just ignored them, and and unrightfully so. You know, and and, and now we can't do that anymore. And, and hopefully, Steve, we've been able to. Yeah, you know, maybe motivate a little bit in people to keep looking and keep studying and open up. We have the fortune. I, I know we talked about it in one of our shows uh, early on about sharing the stories of our players is something that we always go through. Sharing the stories of our players through this virtual year, you know, on on, on the internet was uh, was extraordinarily impactful and moving. And and it is it is how you can grow in awareness is by knowing someone else's plight in life and their story. And until you have that opportunity. You really can't know, and we can't even experience it, but we can at least embrace it and and and, and empathize and, and make the right decisions to, to support accordingly, you know, and, and uh, I just hope everybody at this time, Steve, just continues to be open to the world around us where we can realize how important it is to love everyone and to care for everybody. And they all need our care and love in, in all directions, and, and uh, there's going to it's calling for a big change because there's a lot of people that don't think that way. And there's a lot of people who think you should love these people and those people you don't. And that we have to work our way through that with, with, you know, with great resolve and, and, uh, and we, we have to do this, you know? So um, yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful we could, we, we affected some in some ways and in, in, in through the show. Well, you the said show. it, it's, it's gotta be done with empathy and with humility. And, and, and then I think the thing I've learned, you know, and, and, and Pete, I've watched you in action with the Seahawks. I've, I've sat in on your, your practices, your meetings, and you've always had this incredible culture uh, where there's this beautiful interaction, human interaction. Uh, and I've tried to, to create something similar with the Warriors. But what I've learned during this time is it's, it's not enough. You know, we got to go, we got to dig even deeper. You know, we, we've got to really try to understand 
um, where our players came from. And, you know, how do you, as a coach, how do you create the culture that allows that sort of conversation to happen organically? Um, I think that's the challenge that coaches face out there, but it's critical because the more we can understand each other uh, with empathy, with humanity, uh, we, we better better chance we have of of creating change. You know, and Brene Brene Brown really she addressed that exact thought when she said that what we have to do is create a container that's available that, to surround your group where it's okay to address all of the issues and, and express all of your concerns, and that that's where we can uh, uh, and we have to make it so so that there's an environment where it's okay. To, to to take the chance to tell somebody how you actually feel and what it really feels like and and that's that's where the the, the whole thing about vulnerability is all about and that container is to create the the kind of a a vacuum of courage you know where everybody can speak out and we have to do that way beyond just our own little teams I mean, it's, this has to happen everywhere and so hopefully we can continue to to share that thought and help help influence. no doubt yeah no doubt coming up next uh Corey Booker, just an amazing guest, and uh, I think the perfect way to to kind of finish out uh, this uh, this podcast that we've been running the last few months. So, all right, our guest today, Corey Booker, Senator from New Jersey. Corey, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, so much going on in the world today, and sports and and social issues and politics have all converged. It's become a big topic in our podcast. Uh, so thank you. Thanks for coming in. Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm grateful. I, I have a, so much admiration for the two of you and uh, what you do on and off the court and field. It's uh, you're, you're real leaders, and I'm, I'm grateful to have this chance to be in dialogue with you. That sounds good, but we're gonna, we may be coaching you up a little bit today, if that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Listen, you're still trying to get over your sins of your earlier career uh, coaching in the wrong part of the Pac-10. I understand that. <laughs> Uh, that you yeah. have, you know, you, you're living with a lot of guilt. I, I get that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, I, I did inherit an issue that uh, that Coach John McKay, the Hall of Fame coach at USC, uh, had passed along. That uh, the toughest team he ever had to play was Stanford, and you're you're out. And I'm telling you, it for whatever reason, USC Stanford had that deal. So, I, I but. I, I do welcome the chance to, you know, being a true competitor, that the fact that you, you guys kicked our butt more than you should have. Uh, <laughs> I want to just make sure that, that we do let it out, that you were a pretty darn good football player back in the day, I understand, a little tight end action and uh, all that kind of stuff. The older I get, the better I was, as they go. say. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but I did get in the end zone against USC, which is still one of my, uh, right. my, right. my proudest days. But I'll tell you, one of my favorite moments uh, in football was uh, – it was, I was, we were playing down there and, you know, it's, a, it's, you guys have all this stuff to distract you, big screens, tele, you know, it's just like going to Hollywood when you're playing USC. And, and I'd been the whole week I'd been watching films about, uh, and I was, knew I was going to be going helmet to helmet against Junior Seau. And, and uh, so it was one of the earliest plays, you know, you have all that adrenaline. I usually don't settle down until after I, I, I bang heads a, a, a little bit and then settle into a game. And I remember hitting, and I'm, I'm also one of these guys that never fought, you know, never, not a fighter, never, I believe you do it between the whistles and walk back to the huddle. And, uh, but I, 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 everything I had, I coiled up into a ball. I mean, a whole week of study and preparation. I'm coming after this guy and I hit Junior Seau and it is like hitting a wall. <laughs> and, and, and the whistle blows and I'm still trying to hit him, pushing him. And then all of a sudden, 
I feel somebody grab me from behind. I'm like, oh, this is USC. Somebody's got me from behind. And I look over my shoulder. It's one of my players who pulls me back to the huddle, puts me down. And he goes, what are you, crazy? Don't make that guy mad. <laughs> <laughs> well, sound advice. To, don't yeah. wake that sleeping giant. That's right. Yeah, That's yeah. I've got to, I've got to uh, brush up on my Stanford football history. But so I'm thinking, so this would have been early 90s? I, I played late 80s, early 90s. I had two great coaches. Uh, you know, I played at the end of the Elway era. Uh, and then I got a master's class because I had Denny Green, uh, Brian Billick, uh, uh, Tyrone Willingham, some really uh, just great, great coaches that taught me uh, so much about the game and about life. And uh, it just was a blessing for me as I was sort of coming up my own and emerging uh, and, and sort of really key part of my life when I was deciding sort of where I was going with my life and had a, got a chance to play under those guys. That's that's cool. You're giving credit to your ball coaches because you've gone a long way since then now. Man, you've done a lot of stuff. Golly. Well, we, we had said this off, you know, the, the lessons that you get from sport uh, in every single way. My earliest leadership uh, roles was, you know, captain of my football team in high school and uh, uh, with a band of brothers going up against impossible odds. You know, we had one of the most losingest teams uh, before my era in high school. We, my, my high school was never known for football. Then we came in our era. We won a state championship. They didn't win another one until 30 years later. But that just I that those that being forged in adversity and uh, uh, the lessons you learn, it's the foundation of which I stand on. So I credit football. Uh, first of all, I wouldn't have gotten into Stanford. I used to always joke I got into Stanford because of a 4.0, 1600, 4.0 yards per carry, 1600 receiving <laughs> yards. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, so I know uh, I know I know how I got into Stanford because I was a high school American in a great year. Uh, I think. Uh, uh, you know, my USA All-American team had uh, people like Emmett Smith on it and others. I was the most overrated high school football player, I think, in the history of the game. Uh, so I owe so much to the game and, and so much of what I am right now still leans on the lessons I learned uh, on the gridiron. Isn't that true? So so much of the stuff and we were, we were just built on, you know, in our earlier days, even back to the early days in high school and all, and the challenges to make the teams and the the coaches and playing with upperclassmen and how difficult it was. All of those challenges add add to you know our makeup today, and we I know we're all grateful for all of that too. So yeah, and you it. also know this that it, it it and this is what I you know Bill Bradley is one of my great life mentors and. I still remember in 92, I was at Stanford. I hadn't, didn't know Bill Bradley yet, but he gave a speech on the Senate floor about race. This is in the months uh, around Rodney King and uh, the verdict and a very painful uh, time for my life. Uh, it had been about a decade of my life that I was, um, you know, my family to move into the town I grew up in, which was sort of these uh, really nice suburbs in New Jersey. They had to get a white couple in 69 that poses them in order to buy the house we grew up in. And even on the day of the closing, when they revealed the sting operation, the real estate agent uh, took a swing at the uh, real estate agent, punched him in the face, sticked a dog on my dad. So all of this rigmarole, and we had moved into this town. And, you know, black kids, when they're growing up, uh, you know, young black men, by the time I was 12, 13 years old, I was over six feet tall and began to realize that this uh, world was going to treat me differently because of my size, because of perceived fear, and had a lot of elders in my life coming around me trying to teach me to, to recognize how I affected other people. And, you know, by the time I got a driver's license growing up in a white neighborhood, you 
you see that you get treated differently by the police. Well, by the time a decade from 1213 to 22, uh, when the Rodney King verdict happened, it was this explosive moment in my life. I literally wrote a column in the Stanford newspaper that is still, um, they just called me recently and asked me to reprint it because you could use the same article with just separating the name Rodney King for many of the names, unfortunately, we know now. And uh, I just remember that night, the article was called Why I've Lost Control. It was like a decade's worth of just uh, suppressed sort of anger and rage. And I remember marching. But during that time, Bill Bradley, who uh, wrote this, gave this great speech on the Senate floor about race. And I remember talking to him later about it. And he just said to me, as a guy growing up playing for the Knicks, um, uh, how he, something about sports, when you strip everything away, and it's just you and your teammates, and you are bonded together with them in a common cause under, you know, under, you're sweating with them, bleeding with them. And he said it opened his eyes as a guy from, I think he's from Indiana, to uh, uh, so much about race and race reality, seeing things through his peers and his players' eyes. And so there's always been something about sports to me for the men who, who play it, or men and women uh, who play it, that it, 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 it seems to erode, it seems to deepen levels of empathy and understanding and connection. It has the potential, doesn't always do it, of, uh, of creating a common cause uh, for ideals of just fair treatment and justice. So I owe sports that. And I think that sports right now is an opportunity. I loved it. I remember one day in my Senate office, flipping through the channels of the different sports channels, and I was just so thrilled that every sports channel I switched to, they were talking about some aspect of this racial reckoning in our country. And speaking in a way that, you know, most of America doesn't watch Fox, doesn't watch MSNBC, they watch sports channels. And for this to be an avenue with which to, to prick the consciousness of a country, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good thing. Corey, did you have a sense of all this when you went off to Stanford? I mean, you, 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 go, you go clear across the country. Obviously, you love football. You're excited to play college sports. But you're heading to one of the great universities in the country. Was this uh, was there a sense that you were heading in this direction uh, with your mind and your career where maybe you get into politics? Did you have ideas at that age? Yeah, you know, Public Enemy had a great uh, song in the, as, as uh, back in those days, Don't Believe the Hype. And uh, so I, I may have gotten, I was a really celebrated uh, high school football player, but I didn't, I didn't, you know, I had a very good dose of reality that, uh, you know, in my mind, uh, football was going to be my ticket. It wasn't my destination. And I was going to ride that ticket as far as it could go. But uh, I, the reason why I picked Stanford uh, as a guy who, who got recruited from just about every uh, university out there, I remember looking at USA Today's rankings of college uh, school, of colleges. And I saw that year they ranked uh, Stanford above Harvard and Yale. And I'm like, if I can get a full scholarship to the best academic school, this will give me yet another part of a brick and a foundation to do what I want to do with my life, which by the time I was um, ending my freshman year at Stanford, as a football player, I began working that summer, staying on campus to work out, but working in East Palo Alto, uh, East Palo Alto area with uh, um, incredible young kids from uh, a tougher background than I had. That, was, that forged in me a clarity that I wanted to be involved in, in the fight uh, for the unfinished business of America. And, and it comes from having black parents who were civil rights activists and really raised my brother and I, you know, my, my parents would say, 
you know, that we drank deeply from wells of, of freedom and liberty and opportunity that we didn't dig. You know, my dad would be like, boy, don't walk around this house like you hit a triple. You were born on third base and you, you can't pay it back. You got to pay it forward. So I grew up with this sense that as a black kid, um, I had incredible privileges handed to me, full scholarship to Stanford, um, uh, this incredible um, school that, that literally people had to bleed for, took a punch for it to get me to move into that town as a first black family. So I just had this sense that I wanted to do something that I felt like I was making a contribution to this country. Wow. It's too bad you couldn't get into Arizona, but I'm glad Stanford was your safety <laughs> school. It seems to have worked out pretty well for you. I, uh, <laughs> I, I think I still literally have a scar on my back from playing Arizona. <laughs> um, uh, that, that's some great parts of the Pac-10, now Pac-12 as well. But uh, what a privilege it is, as you guys have found out, to make sport your, um, your career. One thing I love and respect about the two of you is that it, it may be your career, uh, but it's only part of a larger mission that we all have in life. And people who are blessed to play at the echelons that you guys have, coach at the echelons, who understand that that's a lot of power and privilege and that we all have an obligation to use our power and privilege uh, to help others. Um, um, that to me is, is what... Uh, you know, as, as I learned in my life, it's not what you do, whether you're working on Wall Street or uh, uh, teaching in the high school. It's, it's, it's what you are able, how many people you're able to impact to make a difference in the lives of as you go along your journey. So I appreciate you guys living with that spirit and uh, especially during these times. You know, it, you, you touch on something for us, Corey, that like the reason that Steve and I got together to do this this podcast, uh, you know, well, well, back, I don't know, it was back in April, I guess, we started talking about it, it was, uh, you know, to see if during these times, you know, everybody's kind of shut down, maybe we could help the whole COVID situation, raise a little bit of money, but also just get on the topics and the subject matter that might be able to share the experiences that we've had and, and, and how we've seen things. And then it, then as the world continued to shift, it, so many things continued to happen, our topics just jumped uh, in, into some really, really crucial areas of conversation. And, you know, as white guys coaching in this, in this business, we've been coaching black kids our entire life. And we've been, well, I, my coaching career is a little longer than Steve. It's just been such an avenue into the in, into the inside look at uh, young men's lives and, and their backgrounds and their families and their histories that have given us an opportunity to understand the world in a, in a unique way for for white guys in 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 a way. Hopefully, we have been able to influence and help, and will continue to do so. So we really appreciate you contributing with us because this is really what we we came here to do in this particular project. Well, I, I appreciate your guys' humility. Uh, it's amazing how in a time where uh, so much toxic masculinity where people don't want to apologize, think they have all the answers. Uh, the way you guys are going about it in a humble way, I, I've listened to you and it's, it's inspiring to me that you are these guys who are in many ways, for all us guys, you, you are at the echelon of, of sort of uh, uh, achievement. All of us love sports. All of us uh, revere uh, the great athlete. And yet you guys are humble. You're saying to yourselves, we're trying to get it right. We're wrestling with this stuff. We're trying to learn more. We're trying to grow. But that, that's, that to me is uh, a spirit uh, that actually, in fact, there's a great judge, uh, Le Learned Hand, who gave this great speech where he talks about uh, what, this, what this country really means. And he says, it's not our founding documents. Lots of countries have great constitutions. Lots of them have written them. It's really the spirit of 
of liberty they talk about. And he, and he says that the spirit of liberty is never, never too sure that it's right. And he really goes to this, this great idea that, that we are at our best as a country when we're humble before each other, God's creations, uh, uh, and have a spirit of empathy and love for each other. And, and, uh, I think you guys evidence that spirit in a, in a way that shows that you could be strong, tough, winning sport, winning at sports, but also be in awe of other pe other people, whether they're your teammates or the people that play underneath you, and that you know that you have something to learn from them uh, and contribute to them as well. I think that's beautifully said. And, and I think that's been one of the things that's really jumped out at both Pete and me um, you know, over the last couple of months as we've explored uh, the, the, the social issues that are happening around the country. We've had Greg Popovich on, we've had Doc Rivers, we've had some great conversation. Uh, but you know, we we Pete talked about being around black guys his his whole coaching career. You know, and I played with black guys starting from junior high on high school all the way uh, through my NBA career. Now, of course, coaching in the NBA. But I got to tell you that I feel like this last month or six weeks has been so eye opening for me that as much as I thought I knew, just because I've been around black culture. It, it has been extremely humbling um, to understand how much we didn't know. Um, and, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the real African-American history that we just haven't learned in this country. Some of the atrocities that, that have occurred to the African-American communities that we just sort of push aside. And it's, uh, I think it's, the, you know, when you're in sports, uh, and Pete knows this, um, there's a there's a natural humility because, man, no matter how good you are, you're going to take some lumps. You yeah. Know? And so I think this has been a really good time for every coach and every athlete because it's a time for reflection and a time for us to really kind of realize, oh my God, we got a, we got a lot to learn. Yeah. Look, America, we have a problem. We we don't like telling the truth about our history. We think that often by lionizing it, glorifying it, and covering over the wretchedness and the dark corners and the pain and the trauma that somehow that makes us better a Disneyland version in a sense where it's more comforting to us. But the reality is, is we, we actually are better as a country when we confront our imperfections, when we confront the trauma and the hurt, we actually help uh, more, not only to heal, but towards what has always been an unfulfilled aspiration for us to be a great uh, multicultural uh, democracy. That's not based we're not a theocracy where we're based on a common religion. We're not a, a, a nation that was based because we all looked alike, prayed alike, descended from the same branch of the family tree. We're, we broke with the course of human events to form a country that was founded in these principles. And those imperfect geniuses who put these ideals down on paper, where they succeeded um, was not just throwing off the yoke of the British, but they succeeded in setting a standard even beyond their reach but that gave every generation a chance to reach more for it. The problem has been that we've trampled over, uh, I think, a, a lot of the richness of the history by first confessing how far we were away from our, our goals. I mean, even our founders called Native American savages. Women were not equal citizens. Blacks were enslaved. But that, that forgetting of our history, um, I think, has really set us up for a tragic present that we have to reckon with. And so I, I, I appreciate it. And, and it's not even African-American history, it's American history. And I, it's, it's been weird for me as a black guy 
to 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 uh, during the during my um during my uh, uh, presidential run, I went down to Tulsa thinking I knew already about Black Wall Street. But when I actually got there to the Greenwood community and saw that this was 35 blocks, my staff has these pictures because I started breaking down crying. I just felt the grief rising from the from the from the burnt bricks uh, that that were still in the area of just a history how I could not have known was a you know, degrees in history, graduate degree in history. Um, um, and most of America doesn't realize that in the better part of the 20th century, there were massacres from Rosewood to Colfax and Louisiana to, to Tulsa. These are just aspects we don't know. But for us, as, as I should say us, you guys, me as a former athlete, but you all as in the athletics, you know, there's a tough history of, of race and racism in sports. And it, these are issues that we have to deal with. And, and one that I'm grappling with right now that, that I know affects you all, and you probably have strong thoughts on it, is just the NCAA and, and a lot of the rules that have allowed uh, what I believe is the exploitation of athletes. You know, I was a middle-class kid that went out to California to play, and my parents could send me money because scholarships didn't cover everything that we had, that there was. Um, but I watched around the league, the NCAA rather, you know, kids who weren't going to his reputable schools that would do two years, contribute to the, the money-making enterprise, blow out their knee, and then their scholarship would be gone and they'd be bounced out. I have friends of mine today that are paying medical bills for injuries that they sustain when they're athletes. I was a guy that when I added up uh, the hours during my sport, it was like a full-time job or more. In fact, if we were traveling 60, 70 hours, and yet, after four years, a lot of young guys aren't allowed uh, to stay on scholarship, even though they made a lot of money uh, to get their degree. And so the, the level at which uh, lower income athletes who then do make a mistake, try to sell a jersey just to make some ends meet, uh, uh, suddenly uh, get a different, uh, get, get crushed by the NCAA and their career's gone. Or even, you know, friends of mine who watch their images and likenesses being used far after their college career for video games uh, while they weren't making any money and they didn't make it to the big leagues, uh, but colleges were still profiting off of their name, uh, selling their jersey or video games still had their likenesses. These are the kind of things that to me are really problematic and uh, I think uh, are, are still uh, sort of vestiges of issues that we should deal with as a country. And, and I, it's, I'm interested, I, I haven't heard what you guys think about a lot of the name, image, and likeness, which creates a lot of complications, I think, for the league. I talked to uh, Coach Shaw at Stanford as a, uh, as a classmate teammate of mine. I had a really good heart-to-heart -to, -heart to him about the potential downside if we create a situation where um, certain leagues that can afford it can, can uh, uh, create revenue streams for some athletes while others can't, and what that might do to, to breaking up uh, at, at the NCAA competition in basketball, in football, and sort of the, a lot of the money-making sports. But I think this is an era where we have to reckon with now. It's being forced now that Florida has passed their state law. It's going to force Congress, where I sit, uh, to now come up with an idea. And I'm having really direct conversations with senators that uh, I, for one, am not willing to deal with the, the name, image, and likeness issue alone without dealing with the, the healthcare issues that I think the NCA has failed uh, to come up to deal with the educational issues. I'm personally thinking scholarship athletes should be given six to eight years to come back and get their degree, um, not dealing with uh, uh, a lot of the issues around, uh, frankly, just the fact how easy it is for these kids to lose their scholarship. It should be a four-year 
scholarship or five-year scholarship, not a one-year renewable one. A lot of these rules to me seem archaic, and I want to try to force some of these reforms into this moment. You know, Corey, the the, uh, the, the injustice that, that we're dealing with just in the social side of things just runs throughout our entire society. And then here it is, here it is again, the naivete to go through all of the years of college sports and being, you know, playing and, and then coaching it and all to not realize that there was injustice that was being carried out with all the money that was being made and all of that. It's just hits you right between the eyes again, that wherever the money's involved, that we just continue to find ways to abuse and corrupt and, and take advantage of less and less fortunates. And it's just such a, it's just a humanity issue that we're dealing with. But I couldn't agree with you more that the overlooking of the value of the athletes and how they are so responsible for the product and the, and the event and, and the, all of the, the rejoice that, that follows all that. It's the same thing in the NFL to me. The, the NFL players, to, to not be recognized for all that they have made it, this league to be, for them still to feel like they're working for other people. It just I wish that the athletes were respected to the point where they were recognized for all of their input and then compensated however need be and, and whatever. I, there, there's issues in every direction in the college world. Then I know and it's admirable that you're going after it and, and everybody realizes there is such injustice here as well. How we settle it, I don't know. This is such yeah. a monstrous problem. It's, it's such, uh, you're, you know much more so the difficulties of finding ways into changing policy and creating some kind of formula and format where this is all, you know, just and all of that. But it's it's just amazing that we're dealing your entire career now in, in in politics is just it's just one after another. You got battles in every direction, whether you're battling uh reform in the in the prisons or you're or you're battling uh healthcare or you're battling I mean all of the different environmental injustice, all the different things that you fight for. It's just, it's incredible how much work there is to be done. Good gracious. We admire the heck out of you for all that you you put forth in your end of it, man. Steve, what what what, what do you think about the, the whole college thing? You know, I, th I think, um, if anything, this is a really good time for the NCAA to, to take a long look. I mean, I think it's a time for all of us uh, all of to us, take yeah. a deeper dive into whatever we're doing. Can we can we be better? Can, um, whether it's just, you know, what your job is, can you be better at your job? Can you adapt to the circumstances? Or do we need structural change, whether it's in the criminal justice system or the NCAA with the, uh, the system uh, of uh, athlete compensation or uh, there's a, you know, whatever business you're in, I think now's the time to really examine it. My feeling is that the NCAA uh, has to come to grips with reality. The Olympics did so, you know, remember 30 years ago, you know, before yeah. the dream team came, came aboard, you literally had to be a, an amateur athlete to perform in the Olympics. You couldn't make a dollar. And it just became so ridiculous. And the the, uh, the Olympic committees around the world kind of figured it out. They said, all right, we can let our athletes make money um, doing commercials and still compete. And the Olympics did not lose popularity. At all. You know, if anything, they gained popularity. And so I think there's a system. Maybe it's modeled after the Olympics. Um you know, pick your star athlete, whether it's uh, Trevor Lawrence at, at uh, Clemson or or Tua, you know, at, at Alabama last year. A guy like that who is clearly making a ton of money for his school. Um, if he if he wants to, you know, sell his name or likeness, and it doesn't even have to be paid for from the school, right? Because the schools all have to pay for 25, 30 different sports. So to me, it's not even about the NCAA saying, hey, 
the schools have to pay the athletes. It's more about the NCAA saying the athletes can make money elsewhere if they so choose, right? Yeah. So if they want to do a commercial, if they want to get sponsored by Nike or whatever, we can find a way to make that work. And, and if you, you know, if you say, well, that's not going to work, it's going to cause all kinds of problems. Look at all the problems we already have um, yeah. with all the rules that are being broken. So I think there's an answer somewhere in that realm. One of the really difficult challenges here is to control the people outside of the the players that, that can be affected by their success uh, and they want to get in on it and they want it for the same old reason to go and see where they can make some money on, on young kids. It becomes a preying on the athletes and their positions and their opportunities. It's really ugly and it's a it's at the source of it. it's it's not the kids in the school that are making the problems. It's the people that are enticing them into different avenues. Who would ever have thought I could make up jerseys to sell them? Somebody else thought that and, and brought it to the kids and tried to take advantage of. It's a very difficult area. And, and uh, you know, you go back to our SC days. We had some real difficulties that were forced by adults from the outside that wanted to get something out of the success of a young man and, and young athletes. And it's, it's, a, it's a difficult area for sure. Without, there's nothing easy about it. Yeah, I agree. And there's some, some basic things I'd love to see the NCAA. And that's what's been stunning to me in this period is that the NCAA hasn't made a proposal. Um, some leagues have. I, I know the Pac-12 put some things forward about not one-year renewables, four-year scholarships, or covering the healthcare in a better way than it's being done right now for people that might find themselves 10 years later with some kind of right. traumatic brain injury. Or uh, I still have you know some shoulder issues and, uh, uh, you know, you know, these things, these things are, if you don't have the resources, I've got good health coverage to have them, have the universities cover this kind of stuff. But you're right. It opens up some very difficult realities. Look, when I was recruited, uh, it was kind of the wild, wild west in uh, the eighties about the ways they were trying to seduce 17 year old sure. kids to make decisions. And, you know, the NCAA cracked down on that uh, and curtailed that process a little bit. I know you know it well, uh, Pete, but I, I just, I really do worry what I watched some of my my team members who were far more talented than me, never really made it in the NFL, but God, if they, they had earning capacity in those three or four years that they never got to realize, uh, um, uh, even though they were household names and people, other people were profiting off of their likeness and their image, but by the time their career got a chance to go to the NFL, washed up, but they could have made a lot of money in those years uh, that could have put them, you know, into a far better economic security. So I hope that the NCA will be a better good faith grappler. Uh, me and some other senators uh, have been really disappointed by them not coming forward with any kind of vision for the health, safety, and well-being of their athletes uh, better than it is now. Corey, I think, um, you know, Pete said it, there's just so many different ways that you can go um, to try to uh, improve society. When you're a, a member of the Senate, and so many different options and so many things going on. How do you individually and as a body come to agreement on what to discuss and what to move to the side? How does, how does that work? Well, that's, a, that's great. Cause that is, you, you said it right with two different questions. One is where do you as an individual go? And then how does the body sort of govern its direction? So as an individual, look, I represent a state and I try to keep New Jersey interests at the center of, uh, of, of what I'm doing. And so that means everything from becoming an expert in infrastructure. You know, it's not the sexiest conversation. Maybe that's the reason why it's taken me so long to woo my significant other to move in with me uh, uh, because all I want to do is talk about infrastructure. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, you focus on those areas that are really important for your state. 
And, uh, but for me, I also, you know, look, I, I made a decision in my life when I was coming out of Yale Law School to move uh, into uh, this incredible place in Newark. Uh, I always say I live in a community where we don't mistake in wealth with worth. Um, I moved into a low-income neighborhood. The area I live in now is uh, uh, the census about 10 years ago had a, the median family income was about $14,000 per household. And I wanted to keep the people that first elected me in this community, I was a city council person representing where I live now, really at the center. And, and so, so much about this is this ideas of equality and justice and expanding economic opportunity, educational opportunity. And so I let that guide a lot of the things I'm, I do as an individual center, and as Pete generously had said before, focusing on criminal justice reform, uh, uh, focusing on uh, you know environmental injustice, so many of our low-income Americans. In fact, the race now is still the number one indicator in America, whether you're going to drink dirty water, breathe dirty air, live around a Superfund site. And so a lot of those issues drive me forward as well, these issues of how do we make our nation be who we say we are. And then I'm just a big believer that like I just... I feel like I was blessed, as you two were, to get a, a, a fair shot at nurturing the best that God gave me. And I like this idea of expanding opportunity to give people, you know, the greatest natural resource any country has now in a global knowledge-based society isn't oil, gas, or coal. We live in a knowledge-based economy. It's the genius of your children. And there's as many geniuses born in South Central per capita as born in Beverly Hills per capita. But... In Beverly Hills, you have a much better chance of cultivating that genius where kids can better uh, achieve their dreams. And it really is going to be determined upon your sweat, your, 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 your character, your commitment. I, so a lot of my work is just trying to make sure that wherever a child is born, that they have chances for human flourishing, and that's better for the whole. But as far as the body as a whole, look, that's determined by elections. <laughs> it's whoever's in the majority uh, is going to decide What's the agenda? Like, I'm upset. We, I, we could pass a common sense gun safety bill out of the Senate right now because the majority of NRA members believe in, uh, 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 that we should have universal background checks in America, that if you are convicted of, of threatening to kill your wife or if you are on a terrorist no-fly list, you shouldn't be able to buy a gun in America. Most Americans agree with that, Republican or Democrat, but Mitch McConnell, who leads the Senate, won't put the bill on the floor for a vote where it would probably pass. So um, that's why I say elections matter, because that the, whoever, whichever party is in the majority gets to determine what the agenda of the United States Senate is. And I've been frustrated these, these last years watching uh, bipartisan efforts uh, um, be stymied by not being able to get to the Senate floor. And so this is going to be an election in 2020. I know a lot of eyes are on Donald Trump, but probably just a little less important or maybe of equal importance is going to be who is in the majority in the United States Senate. And, and there's races from Arizona, Colorado, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, that are all going to combine to determine uh, which way the Senate goes. Uh, and, and that's why I'm spending a lot of work. I'm up for re-election this year as well, but I'm spending a lot of work uh, trying to help a lot of other people around the country. Corey, you know, the, um, what attracted my family to, to your your causes was uh, this commonality that not of the things that you've chosen to speak on and, and to support and, and fight for, but the the consistency of where the message comes from. Such a compassionate, such a caring, such a, a empathetic and, and a loving spot that, that that everything that you speak on and, and stand for 
demonstrates that great connection that you have to your heart. For the people that are listening, if they want to learn some some stuff about the world, you want to follow where, where Cory Booker has been and what he talks about and all, there's so many great things. But Cory, I've never heard you, this is my opinion, never heard you so passionately uh, expressing your, your the the core of your being as you did in those couple of days that happened in June and and there was there was one on June third and one on June fourth when you got you know you got on topics and they really were about race and one was about the anti lynching uh, bill that was that you were fighting for and 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 the frustration that you that you ran up against with with a single opposition and and how you spoke there but then also the, the when you were just talking about um, you know you know. Do you see me? That 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 whole thought core is so at 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 the core of what Steve and I were hoping to convey and, and try to make people understand what is at stake here and what is at hand here in, in, in dealing with race and how can we, you know, make proper steps to support the the the, the new empathy and the new learning we need in, in our culture and all. Could could you honor us by just sharing the uh, the thoughts about that that speech about you know do you see me just to share with with our listeners you know what hey, was Corey, it Corey I'm gonna if you don't mind Corey I'm gonna yeah. we're gonna play a clip from yeah, that sure. from sure. that uh, speech because it's it was so powerful and um, let's play the clip and then uh, and then have you respond off off of the clip if if you would sure it's why so many Black Americans scream out. Do you see me? I do not have your equal justice under law. Do you, do you see me? I do not have justice for all. Do you see me? I matter. I matter. Black lives matter. Black bodies matter. America, I love you. Do you see me? Do you know my experiences? Do you see the failings of our ideals? The murder of a black man by multiple cops who knew they were being filmed in broad daylight is not the extent of the problem of racism in America. It is a final and deadly manifestation of that racism. Wow. That's powerful stuff. And as Pete mentioned, there, there were several, you had several moments in front of the Senate equally as emotional. And I know the, you know, the last couple of months, uh, the events, uh, the movement itself has brought a lot of emotion for all of us. But speaking as a black man uh, in front of the Senate, it, it must have been one of the biggest, most significant moments of your life, I would think. Yeah, look, I, I'm just, people might not realize this, I'm just the fourth black person ever properly elected to the Senate. Before me was Barack Obama, before that Carol Mosley Braun, and before that Edmund Brooke. And um, you, you can't walk into that body without feeling the, the history uh, that came before you and how in many ways you are still anomalous in the, in the longer history of that body. And you, know, you feel this obligation to try through your lived experience uh, to, to bring light onto the lived experience of tens of millions of Americans who have not often had a chance to speak from that floor or a representative uh, to speak to their experiences. And um, I've felt it a number of times. I remember after the Ferguson uh, uprisings, speaking to my own caucus in private, there were no cameras. And I'll never forget uh, the then Senator of uh, Maryland, uh, Barbara McCloskey, comes up to me and just implores me, because uh, at that point I was trying to be, I had just gotten to the Senate, I was trying to keep my 
not speak show. I was going to be a workhorse and not a show horse, but she implored me to speak more that you, you have an experience here that's unique and you need, you need to let people understand it because you'll move people. And so th- this has been a time where just trying to get folks to understand that we in America and W.E.B. Du Bois said this, that one of the biggest tragedies of our country is that we know so little of each other. And, and somehow we've grown comfortable and through our comfort, we've grown complicit in, in the suffering of fellow Americans. You know, what I talked before about environmental injustices. I mean, we have 3,000 jurisdictions in America where children have more than twice the blood lead levels of Flint, Michigan. And that's, that's a vicious, permanent brain damage. We, we literally have... Uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of our children uh, drinking water. We don't see, we're drinking dirty water and we don't seem to have a national sense of urgency. It would be a fraction of what we've just spent on these bailout packages, these COVID packages to replace every lead service line in America that goes to schools and the classrooms where we don't have an urgency to do that. We have a nation that is an aberration amongst industrial nations for the amount of women that die in childbirth. Overall, where the, where the, have the highest maternal mortality rates, but black women die at about four times that of white women. Uh, um, and even when you control for economics, black women are much more likely to die. And I can go through all of this. I mean, the, the criminal justice system is a trail of tears. It, it, you know, we have a nation that's no difference between blacks using drugs or dealing drugs, uh, but African Americans are about four times more likely to be arrested for those things. We have young people getting life sentences for doing things that two of the last three presidents admitted to doing. And when I say life sentences, you don't get a life sentence for uh, possession of marijuana or possession with intent to sell, but you get a life sentence in the sense that after that, uh, you can't find a job, you can't get a business license, you can't get a loan from a bank. And the outrage in the fact that we are now, because of this criminal justice system that is Brian Stevenson says, treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Uh, we have a nation that now has more African-Americans under criminal supervision than all the slaves in 1850, 1860. And, you know, I posted something on my Instagram last night about uh, the president who has absolute pardon power and pardoning one of his friends who says, I wasn't going to turn on the president. And then I, it was compared right next to a kid named Khalif Browder who uh, was a kid that was in Rikers. Now, I went to Rikers, interestingly enough, with Jared Kushner's dad, Charlie Kushner, who had come out of prison. I knew him from New Jersey. We went to Rikers. And it was the first time I I saw the stunning reality that there are children in America that that languish in prison for months. Khalif Browder was there over two years, never been convicted, but they just can't afford a lawyer like my parents would have afforded for me to get them out. Khalif Browder was in prison in solitary confinement for more than two years for stealing a backpack. That's not equal justice. And that unequal justice grinds African-Americans' communities uh, uh, into poverty. Uh, Vanderbilt University studied our over-incarceration said America as a whole would have 20% less poverty if we had equal incarceration rates. Uh, It grinds our country into torture, uh, what we do to children in, in prison. Solitary confinement, literally, uh, psychological professionals will tell you it does permanent damage to your brain, brings about mental disorders. So I could go on about these things that happen, um, but I'll, I'll end with this idea of complicity, that we are all complicit, we are all responsible. If something's going on in our nation, especially if it's being done in our name, remember our criminal justice system 
does things in our name, it's the people versus or the state versus. If we are silent in the face of injustices, uh, you know, we pick your great leader from the past as one great leader once said, the only thing necessary for evil to be triumphant is for good people to say nothing. And I know this because up the street from where I live, where these high rise uh, projects, which I moved into for almost a decade, and I watched the, these kids grow up there and this crew of kids that hung out in the lobby that were brilliant and athletic and charismatic and genius children. Most of them are now dead. Jihad uh, Smith was the last one killed in 2018 with an assault rifle. When I called the police officer, uh, they said it was like his head blew up when the, when the, when the, when the bullet hit him. But the first child that died um, was one of the biggest mistakes I feel like I've made in my life because um, when I, the, the, the Hassan Washington was sort of the leader of this crew who, um, when I walked in, and these, these kids were still in high school, and I remember smelling marijuana. But again, kids in the, black kids in the inner city don't have the same freedom to use marijuana as kids at Stanford did, which I saw so much drug use when I was at Stanford. And so I, try, I intervened with them for a while, I was trying to get them mentors and, and put them together with uh, uh, people that would help them achieve their dreams. But I didn't follow through because I got too busy. We're all busy people. I was running for office. I was running for mayor at the time. And these kids, knowing I had made commitments to them, but they, would still, they were still my friends. I would still come along in the lobby, having not followed through on some of the things I said I would do. But they knew I was busy. They knew I was running for office. And they cheered me on. They would lift me up at night. Well, I eventually got elected mayor, had death threats against me. They posted police officers all around me, including in the lobby where I lived. And, and so the kids didn't hang out there. And I'll never forget the first murder, one of the early murders and when I was in office, uh, when I went down, didn't even pay attention to that much of the humanity dead on the sidewalk, covered by a sheet. I ministered to the living, went home that night, and I still remember seeing uh, the murder the name of the person murdered, and it was Hassan Washington. And I still remember that it was in one of those moments that something broke inside of me that could never be fixed. And uh, where you are just thrown into this sense of shame that I am here, and all three of us are here, but, but because of, you know, my dad was born poor to a single mom, and, and his family couldn't take care of him. There were people in the community that did. When he, he needed a home to live in, a, a family, I consider them now my family. They took him to their house. My father wasn't going to go to college. There was a community that made him go to they, In fact, the church took a collection so my dad could enroll in an HBCU. Uh, um, when he got out of college, it was, again, blacks and whites through the Urban League that helped the black people get jobs at companies that refused to hire them beforehand. My dad became one of IBM's first black salesmen in the country, their first one in the Virginia area and got, uh, did incredibly well. He got opportunity and thrived, became one of their top 5% of their global salesmen. Then he goes on to uh, uh, move to New Jersey. And I told you the story already, blacks and whites helped my family move into the town I grew up in. And, and so here God had put my father right in front of me, a kid just as charismatic as my dad, the same wit, the same humor, the same uh, leadership abilities. And unlike the town that wrapped themselves around my dad, I failed to, to live up to that. And so I say this to you to say that there are black children dying all over America. It is a commonplace thing. When I wrote about this moment in my book where I said, when we all got together for his funeral, we were packed in there for what is now an almost daily American tradition, black boys in boxes. And I just remember all of us showed up for his death, but where were we for his life? 
And so here we live in a country where that black boy born in America is most likely, more likely going to be drinking dirty water, more likely going to be living around a Superfund light, more likely to be traumatized uh, by the sound of gunfire. This last 4th of July, we had, you know, kids that have trauma uh, hide under beds when they hear firecrackers. Is more likely to go to a school that's not as equally funded as schools where white kids go. Is more likely uh, uh, to face a criminal justice system that will stop him, harass him, accuse him of stealing things. This I know intimately because it happened to me. I could go through the things that are going to happen, but the question are is what are we doing about it? We cannot, as Americans, put our hand over our heart and swear an oath with our words that we are going to be a nation of liberty and justice for all, and yet be willing to sacrifice nothing for that. And, and, and you said the word love, Pete, and it is the most powerful force on the planet. It's the only salvation we have. But people seem to think that love is this saccharine sentimentality or that you love people that look like you, pray like you, or in your family. That's not the love we herald in America. Love is, is, is sacrifice. It's service to others. It's storming beaches in Normandy. It's going on freedom rides, knowing you get beaten for other people that you don't know. That, that's the ideals of our country. And right now, we have become too comfortable with injustice. We've become too adjusted uh, to injustice in our country, and it demands. And the most urgent thing we have right now is this poverty of empathy, where we don't even know the conditions of our brothers and our sisters. Uh, because I know we have a deep reservoir of love in this country that if we just knew we paid attention, if we listened, if we heard, uh, then we might be willing to act in accordance with that highest ideal of love. Yeah, Greg, Greg Popovich had a great phrase to describe what you were just talking about. He called it the accident of birth. You know, by accident of birth, the three of us are right here talking on this, uh, this podcast right now. And by the accident of birth, Hassan Washington was born into the situation that he was born into. And here we are, right? Um, it's sort of, it's just the lottery. Do you, do you, do you win the lottery or not? Are, are you, are you born into a situation where you can succeed or are the odds just stacked against you? And, and I think for a lot of, uh, Americans, it's just easier to shut our eyes because these, these things are so disturbing. And so a lot of the, a lot of the strategy, frankly, of a lot of politicians is just to, Kind of do what you talked about at the beginning of this podcast, Corey, is just focus on all the all the great things about our country. And there are, there are some wonderful things, uh, but we can't just live these side-by-side realities. They, they have to become one. And I think that's the, that's the challenge. And, and uh, boy, we, uh, we sure appreciate everything you're doing to try to, uh, try to create that change to, to become that one country we're looking for. Yeah, Corey, you are the champion of of a new empathy, and and you're not just doing it just to be a good guy or because you know you, you feel for people. It's because you know that there's that is the connection that's going to make the difference. And until it becomes an emotional connection that we're striving to accomplish, where we really do feel the people around us, all people, and we can respond to them accordingly and justly, and and with all of the right heart and intent. Um, and that's what you stand for in my eyes. Please keep doing the work you're doing and, and uh, keep fighting for what you're fighting for because you're fighting for the right stuff and, and we need you so desperately. Well, both of you have been really good to me and have been friends and, and, and help. I tell you, Pete, when I, when I was uh, in the grind of a presidential campaign and I was up in Seattle and I went to this incredible women's uh, collective workspace 
And, uh, and and the last person I expected to see there was Pete Carroll. <laughs> and it was the first time I met you. And I was so stunned to see you. And again, your humility and your grace uh, was so incredible. And, and Steve, you as well. Uh, we have mutual friends that were telling me that you were saying nice things about me and led to us connecting. So look, I, I, a lot of times we point fingers at other people's responsibility. But uh, if I can leave you, I know we're over time now, but if I could leave you with uh, just a, uh, one more story uh, because I think that this is the idea. It's a time in America that we shouldn't be thinking about what is government going to do or what are others going to do. It's just, what can I do? And, and we can all do a little bit more. And I always just tell the funny story in my, in my own neighborhood as a guy that speaks about love and empathy and all of this, that one day I was driving home about three blocks from here. I don't know if you guys have these out West, but in Newark, we have these places called McDonald's. I don't know if you ever heard uh, those <laughs> at all. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm a vegan, uh, uh, but I was going there for the French fries. And I, I drove into the, you know, and I had a guy that was driving me when I'm working in Newark. And we drive into the drive through I get my two French fries. All I want to do is come and buckle my pants, go, go home, sit on the couch, watch TV. <laughs> and I see a guy uh, sort of digging in a trash can. And so I roll down my window and I say, Hey man, you all right? And and he tries to wave me off, and you know I, I say it again in a way to sort of see his equal dignity, in mine, and sort of in the light spirit. Hey man, you need anything? And he turns around and goes, "I'm hungry." And just like you guys, we all would do this. You know, uh, my faith. I think the Bible says something about if you have two McDonald's French fries and your neighbor has none, <laughs> you should you should give them one. I think it was a sermon on the McMount, and uh, and so I I give the guy my French fries. I feel good about myself and. I turned to Kevin thinking Kevin's going to drive, but before the, Kevin could drive, the guy says, excuse me, do you have any socks? And I don't carry any socks around my, in, my, in my car. And I look at him, sort of vainly look around and say, I'm sorry, I don't have any socks. And um, he looks sad, and, but still grateful for the French fries. I turned my head thinking Kevin was going to drive now, and Kevin doesn't drive. He puts the car in park and reaches between his legs and down below the steering wheel, takes off the shoes, He's wearing, takes off his socks and hands them out the window. And at that moment, the guy looked like he had just got something that was worth its weight in gold. And I got a great lesson in life that, you know, every moment, every day, we have chances to touch people, but it takes moral imagination. It takes things centered. Uh, I was three blocks from my home, have socks I probably haven't worn yet, but I didn't see in that very moment. And so this is the kind of creative empathy that we need in this moment is not to wait for other people. Um, but to try to do something ourselves. And, and frankly, you guys are doing that right now. I, I, through our private conversations and uh, watching you on this podcast grapple with these issues, uh, and you guys have so much reach and so much influence. A lot of us use our privilege uh, for ourselves and our families, but you guys are doing it in a way right now that is so important. And, and just having me on today and having this kind of rich conversation, I'm grateful to you and, and just thankful. And, and Steve, I know you're upset because... I won a national championship in basketball. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, Excuse me? Yeah, I am the only person in Congress who was a starting member of a national championship basketball team. Now, now let, let that settle in for a moment before I tell you uh, uh, the fullness of the story is that it was uh, the British national championship because I played for the <laughs> Oxford uh, uh, varsity team in England. And, and, nice. and, uh, uh, but I know you're still jealous uh, of my – that I achieved that uh, the glory of a national being a national champion, and you did not in, in an area that you know. They, if you're an American, they spot you ten points just out of humility. That's uh, right. That's uh, right. Uh, 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 
So were you a were you a Rhodes Scholar? Is that what you were doing in in Oxford? Yeah, I was. I was. I was one of the last great jock Rhodes Scholars, not one of the <laughs> not one of the genius Rhodes Scholars. Uh, but yeah, I uh, I got a chance to live over there for a couple of years, and it was, and playing. It was finally after all those years of being a football player. Who uh, I, and this is true also that I, I led my league in high school in fouls. <laughs> um, I, I think I fouled about every out of every high school game because making that transition from football to basketball is always hard. So I finally, <laughs> I, I finally got to uh, to live my dreams of being a great basketball player in a country where the level was a lot lower. <laughs> <laughs> the hack booker. I love it. Well, every, every team needs a level of physicality. I know that. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. I was the enforcer. <laughs> That's right. Really good. That's right. Thank you, Corey. Corey, thank Appreciate you so it. much. Good, good luck. luck huh? uh, good luck with everything you're doing and, and uh, amazing to, to chat with you today. Thank you, fellas. Call on us if we can help. If we can ever help you, call us, all right? We'll do. Okay. Thank you both, gentlemen. All right. Take, all right. take care now. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. He makes us proud, doesn't he? He's just such an amazing yes, person. What a great American. Amazing yep. guy. Amazing. Appreciate you, man. It's been awesome. It's been a blast. It's been fantastic. Yeah, it really has. I've and had a blast. Way, maybe way more fun than we thought it would be, you know? I mean, I, I know. We, we look forward to it. It was fun to do it. It was fun to prepare. It was good to have something to prepare for, you know? That's as right. We, as we're sitting That's here right. in the summertime. Uh, it's the least we could do, you know, and, and we, let's just keep working to do more and, and, uh, wish you the very best. Let's make sure we, we, uh, share our times. If we get going and cranking and you want to come visit us, come on in again. We'd love to oh, have well, you. Let's do it. Let's do it. I can't wait to see it again. I can't wait to see the Warriors <laughs> back in action, man. All right. All right. All right. Take care, bud. Thanks. You too.